it's Monday night, and we're back for a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes comics and politics. Uh, we've got part two of our discussion uh, about Captain America's Civil War, so this is the perfect show for folks who wonder if Dan DiDio and Jim Lee are in fact behind the entire election that's going on. Um, so <laughs> we, we've got some guests, and before we introduce them, I want to kick it over to my co-host, Alana. How you doing? I'm great, and I just want to thank my guests for humoring me on what I'm really excited to have, which is a conversation with two of the uh, leading essayists around Civil War movie that just came out, debating where Captain America's politics are in this movie. You know, I'm a little bit, like the whole framing of Team Cap versus Team Tony is good social media marketing, but it's actually a really bad way of appreciating art, and a bad way of thinking about politics, and I'm really excited to have a conversation around uh, where Captain America's politics are in the movie that goes a bit deeper than that. And uh, let's let's take it away, guys. Yeah, so uh, let me introduce our two guests. Uh, we first have Amanda Marcotte, who was part uh, or joined us for Jessica Jones on two episodes. So you, uh, she is a past guest of the show. Uh, she is a politics and writer for Salon. In the past, she's covered liberal politics and feminism for Slate, Rolling Stone, USA Today, and many other publications. Stephen Adewell, he uh, joined us last week for part one of our discussion where we talked about uh, the Civil War comic. Um, he's written a whole bunch about uh, Captain America being a New Deal Democrat. Uh, so Steve, uh, he also teaches sorry, public uh, policy at CUNY's. Murphy Institute for Labor Studies, and he's the founder of Race for the Iron Throne. So if you're really into Game of Thrones, you should check that out. Uh, so and, Amanda, Amanda's, and Amanda's video series for Slate about Game of Thrones. I should mention that. Which well. is actually oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you. House Slate is what it's called. Cool. So, Amanda, the uh, reason we wanted you on the show uh, is you wrote a very intriguing article for Salon, um, how you feel that Captain America is now a douchey libertarian which is pretty much all libertarians. <laughs> I feel like douchey and then adding libertarians kind of like it's doubling it up where it's just, you know, libertarian implies douchey. But yeah, uh, so before we get to that, uh, I think the, the best question to start with, because we've, we've just had our conversation so folks know where we stand if they listen to part one, is generally what did you think of the film? I loved it. I want to be extremely clear that um, in general I buy Steve's, Steve Rogers' motivations, I buy the the personal conflict. I think they did a much better job than the comics of really rooting this conflict in human emotion and understanding that at the end of the day, stories about people making people choices are much more interesting than dry political debates. <laughs> so, you know, I think most of the movie worked really well for me which was why I was super confused that they still felt the need to force this Sovakia, or I, for, I forget what it's called, Sovakia, right? Sokovia? Sokovia. Sokovia, that's right. Sokovia accords into the, into the story because I just don't buy... I don't buy this notion that Steve Rogers would dismiss out of hand, you know, something that struck me as simple as a peace treaty giving some amount of international oversight to the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, uh, interesting. To, uh, a good question from that. It would be is, did you read the comics beforehand? It would be good to know kind of like your background as far as that. 
You know, I never did read the Civil War comics. Um, I've read adjacent comics to it. I, I've read the Brubaker run of Captain America that, you know, kind of wound into it, you know, that sort of dealt with the aftermath of Steve getting murdered. Um, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and I've been warned by a lot of people that I wouldn't enjoy it, so I never did bother to read it. They're probably correct. <laughs> yeah. Have you read it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They're not. They're not uh, high art. And in fact, I think we were talking that, in some ways, the the legislation that is presented in the show is actually a lot saner than the legislation that's presented in the comics. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, have you – I wanted to ask you before we got too deep into it, have you guys been watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? I don't. I have. Because uh, I they, don't, but I probably need to. <laughs> they they deal with the that aspect of it on the show a lot better. On the show – it's a little strange. In the movies, I don't recall them saying that there was going to be registration. In the show, however, of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., they come to blows with the government because the government is, in fact, trying to register inhumans. Yeah, and I think that... Go yeah, ahead. I mean, that's, that's a good, like, it's a good point. Uh, so, I mean, the in the movie, it's more... I mean, for those who don't know, and, you know, a lot of the... Steven, you don't watch, but yeah, in the movie, it's straight up, you know, they're going to be kind of under the UN and people are going to make decisions for them. So really just makes them like a military arm of, of the UN, where in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., it is everyone going to be tracked and, and figure out what their power set is and get them trained. It's much more in line with the comics, which is really bizarre difference yeah. between the two. I mean- I've been reading some articles about some of the um, uh, underlying tensions due to the, sort of the one-way flow of continuity between the the movies and the TV show, and you know the fact that you know the you know in in the show right the Inhumans are starting to spread virally because Terrigen Mist were like added to the oceans, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. you know that's. You'd, you'd think that would come up, you know, if the reason why the Sokovia Accords are happening is because there are, you know, dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of superpowered people popping up. And, you know, you'd, you'd sort of see that as the political driving factor. Where here it was very much dealing with the, you know, the sort of geopolitical actions of, you know, a dozen individuals at most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Who are holding themselves like out as a law enforcement agency, no less. Mm-hmm. I would say, I would, I would, I would call in the in my article. I called the Avengers a paramilitary organization, and I think that's right. But I think that they also hold themselves out as, you know, basically a lawful strike team. You know, trying to enforce the order wherever they go. Hmm. Yeah, and they never talk about themselves as being accountable to anybody or anything other than their own self-described sense of what's just and what's right. And just because they have a good track record on that doesn't mean that that would always be the way, and it doesn't mean that there wouldn't be other legitimate, you know, 
perceptions of that. And even though Zemo is actually wrong in terms of his take about what happened, like that doesn't, it's, it's real in his eyes, you know, mm-hmm. and opens them up to the fact that, yeah, they're running with no accountability. And I think that, uh, you know, in, in the, in, in the comics where the legislation that is proposed is would essentially turn every person with powers into a a forced soldier of the government, so to speak. Like it's obvious, like why somebody like Cap and all the other folks would say, "Screw that! That's like fascist to hell no." But in the in the in the movie, the the, the accords make it very clear that this is just about the Avengers and, and and people who are like the Avengers who are serving as superhero teams, um, and having them be accountable to something, and that comes off as very reasonable, and. You know, I, I really, really when when I when I heard, when I saw Amanda's piece, it was totally what I was thinking here because, you know, I felt in the in the movie like Steve is completely sympathetic, but he's wrong on the policy. Well, um, so I'm ready to argue the other side of the case, and I think it has to do with, and you know, this is something I've been following in in other podcasts, but the way that the politics of the MCU have been set up in terms of, I think the issue is not, you know, for, for Steve is not so much that there is oversight, but who the oversight is coming from. You know, he, he says at one point, you know, um, governments have agendas and agendas change. And so, you know, the way that I was interpreting his politics at the moment is, you know, he's just coming off of winter soldier in which, you know, the U S government and, Shield, which is this, you know, international law enforcement espionage peacekeeping agency. It's very unclear. Um, <laughs> just showed to be infilt- you know, infiltrated by Hydra at the highest levels, and so I think he's in a position where he sort of says, "I don't necessarily trust any of these institutions because any of them could be compromised." And you know, one of the things that um, uh, my friends at the Unspoiled podcast pointed out when they were dis- discussing this is that they felt like, you know, even though the, the movie is like two and a half hours long, that they felt that there needed to be more discussion of the underlying debate because, you know, if remember that um, sort of slideshow presentation that, that Thunderbolt Ross puts on? Yeah. That if you look at those events, almost all of them were caused by the actions of government. So New York happened because S.H.I.E.L.D. was fucking around with the Tesseract, and the World Security Council wanted to nuke New York City. So if we're talking about collateral damage, the Avengers, you know, are doing a much, much better and much more um, uh, uh, conscientious job than world governments at that moment. Uh, Washington, D.C., again, you know, the U.S. government and the – World Security Council created a weapon of mass destruction and that got taken over by Hydra and it had to be brought down. Uh, you know, Segovia is kind of the one thing that can be that could be blamed on the Avengers, but there it's it's Tony specifically. He was the one who created Ultron, and yet he is the one who is making himself, you know, the the arbiter of this new system. Uh, as long as he cares to, because, you know, one of the things that happens in the movie 
is that the moment that Tony doesn't like the system, he just says, fuck it, I'm going to do my own thing. Um, and I think that's where, you know, the context that, that Steve Rogers is coming from is that he basically says, you know, these public institutions have shown themselves to be incredibly vulnerable to, um, to you know, to, to infiltration and corruption and overthrow. And if we give ourselves over to them, you know, that could happen to us. I, you know, Steve, I fully agree with you, and I think that's, I mean, that is definitely how the movie portrays it. And I think where I draw the line and where I start to get critical is that, to my mind, comic book movies, especially if we want to kind of talk about them seriously in, in, in these sort of political terms, work best if they are riffing on politics in the real world. And the the thing is, in the real you know, in the real world, this notion that um, government oversight is is automatically, or the notion that government oversight is suspect because governments have corruption in them. I think all of us would see that. That's a we would all see the sure. red flags and the mm-hmm. and and that's where yes, I, I agree that. They they did a good job of laying out a, a backstory for Steve that he would come to this conclusion, but I still felt in the end it it was at the expense of undermining him as a character who sort of you know stands up for a kind of liberal ideal of transparency, government responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. The collective good. Yeah. 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 I mean. To to present the I think you've got a strong point there in terms of like you know especially the idea of of accountability and and transparency the the counter argument I guess would be to say that you know Steve Rogers has never been in the comics or in the movies um, you know what's been referred to as a company man you know he's not someone whose primary loyalty is to states he is in some ways a very radical. Um, person in the sense that he believes that you know he'll act from his ideals no matter what the government thinks you know you start with the first movie right he was essentially breaking the law by repeatedly violating or sorry by repeatedly volunteering for the army despite having been rejected uh he then once that happens to him you know goes uh off mission to you know become something more than a figurehead and instead, you know, rescues the Hydra base, uh, rescues, you know, the Howling Commandos from the Hydra base. And then in Winter Soldier, you know, he brings down S.H.I.E.L.D., basically, you know, and against the, you know, the dictates of law and, you know, probably the will of the American people. And, you know, in the comic books, likewise, you know, the, the phrase is always he's loyal to the dream and nothing else that he doesn't obey governments, that if he thinks that governments are uh, corrupt, he either resigns or takes action against that government. I mean, you know, when Nixon tried to, you know, take over the United States with a flying saucer, uh, you know, Captain America chased him down and, you know, was about to arrest Nixon when Nixon shot himself. I love so, comics. Yeah, I <laughs> That's think, amazing. I can, you know, I, I can see that, you know, yes, he certainly is someone who believes in the welfare state, and he's certainly someone who believes in, um, you know, 
the ideals of, of democracy, but it's very much from this position of, you know, in, in some cases sort of a radical individualism, not, uh, you know, certainly not a political individualism in the sense that he thinks that everything should be deregulated and we should all be, you know, you know, libertarians, but he's certainly someone who serves, says, I'm never going to take a backseat to the dictates of law and order when it comes to my conscience. It's why such a strange thing that he, I mean, he's Captain America, like, not like, you know, Captain Marvel, I'm sorry, Captain Marvel in DC Comics is not a person of the military. Captain America in Marvel Comics is a captain in the military. And if your framework for heroism is not based on a particular order, then the military is probably not a realistic place for you to be operating. So it's sort of a strange juxtaposition, not to get too off topic, but... Yeah, I mean, it it always has been, you know. So from the moment that he comes out of the ice, you know, he uh, is constantly butting heads with S.H.I.E.L.D., he doesn't like taking orders from people anymore. He sort of feels like, and you know, this has always been a part of his kind of man out of time thing, is that he spent so much of his early life taking orders that he didn't really get a chance to be his own person. And you know, the further sort of the further along he goes, the more he starts thinking for himself and starts challenging uh, people around him. And you know, you sort of saw that in the Winter Soldier where. You know, part of the the uh, role that uh, Sam Wilson, uh, the Falcon, played was in getting Steve Rogers to see himself as something more than someone who obeys orders, as you know, someone who could um, make decisions on his own behalf, uh, even if that meant going against what the system thought. So, you know, you know, I, I think that that's all extremely right and fair. I, I couldn't agree more with you on all this. I think the other complication, though, that I have with it is that I, the specific value, so even uh, conceding that Captain America isn't just a my country right or wrong guy, right? He's not. Um, And I fully concede that. The value that I think that is on the table here is the value of transparency and accountability, right? And I I struggle to see why the Avengers would somehow lose out for trying to embrace more transparency and accountability. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for instance, uh, Zemo in the movie, he is angry because he misunderstands exactly what happened in Sokovia, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know... People scoff at bureaucracies and they scoff at paperwork and they scoff at congressional hearings. And, you know, as these things happen in the real world, they give us a lot of reasons to scoff. But on the other hand, I think that there would have been a lot of value in having a congressional hearing in in the Marvel Universe where the Avengers are actually asked to explain what went wrong. And, you know, if they told their side of the story... You know, the same way that Hillary Clinton told her side of the story of Benghazi, you you began to feel a lot more sympathy for them and, and the tough decisions that these people, you know, working in intelligence have to make. Mm-hmm. And I think that and, – and the Captain America Winter Soldier to me was a guy who understood this thoroughly. In fact,
fact, that was the whole point of turning on S.H.I.E.L.D., was he disliked their secrecy. He felt if you're doing the right thing, then you shouldn't have anything to hide. And, you know, the movie actually valorizes congressional hearings. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, mean, they make fun of the politicians that do them badly, but, like, the notion that Black Widow can speak on C-SPAN and say speaker piece was, you know, held up as a cool moment. No, absolutely. Um, the the one thing I thought was interesting, you know, just in terms of uh, making all of this flow from character, is I also felt that the characters were acting a lot more in a mature fashion, so that, you know, initially, right, Steve Rogers says, I don't like this. But his go-to is not, I'm immediately going to create an underground, you know, resistance movement. He's basically about to retire uh, up until the moment where he finds out about Bucky. And then his attitude is, well, you know, we've just seen the Sokovia Accords, um, you know, in in action for the first time, and they're being used to authorize, you know, shoot on kill. Uh, And, you know, I think that raises for him some red flags about, you know, due process uh, and the right to a trial. And then, the moment after, you know, he goes after Bucky in, in Bucharest and, you know, gets captured, he's ready to, to, to sign on at that moment because, you know, as he says to Black Widow, you know, Bucky's alive. So, you know, he's sort of done and dusted. It's only when he finds out that Tony Stark is holding uh, Wanda Maximoff essentially in an indefinite detention and that, you know, this Zemo guy is threatening a, uh, you know, a, a global crisis in a, in a situation which the Sokovia Accords would absolutely make sure that the Avengers couldn't possibly intervene, because since when is Russia going to allow the Avengers to conduct a military strike on their soil? You know, he, that's when he tries to, you know, do this one mission. But it's not like, uh, it's not like he's leading an attack on Tony himself. So I kind of appreciated that. You know, and I, I really felt personally, too, that the everything involving Bucky worked really, really well in the movie because that is a classic Captain America story, a man falsely accused, you know, going to be punished without mm-hmm. due process. That's going against all of his value systems, so he's going to fight, you know, for due process. And if he's not going to get it, then the social contract's broken down and he sees no reason to obey the law anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. But I guess my question would be to you, Stephen, is like, in a world in a world where Captain America refuses to sign the Sokovia Accords, like, what does he propose as a countermeasure for keeping the Avengers accountable? Um, because... If they're not, he's just one, you know, getting possessed by malice from the Brotherhood of Evil away from, like, leading them in the wrong direction and being able to get away with it, you know, without being controlled, for example. Like, there's no yeah. securities built in. It, it's interesting because, you know, I, I think this is where, uh, you know, the folks from the Unspoiled podcast, you know, have a really good point about not being enough discussion of these issues in the movie. Because you get very little hints. You know, he sort of says... You know, he's got this issue of, like, personally taking responsibility versus um, kind of shuffling responsibility upwards on the chain. And, 
later on, you know, when he says to Tony, like when he's about to sign on, he says, you know, I'm okay with this as long as there are safeguards to make sure that, you know, we can do what we need to do and that the powers that be completely shut us down. You know, that suggests a more nuanced position than just, you know, Team Cap, Team Tony, and certainly a way more nuanced position than in the comic books. Um, And, you know, that's sort of where I'm wondering, like, he just didn't, maybe we just didn't see enough of what his solution was. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, honestly, I found the, the, if you think, if you stop and think about the Sokovia Accords, you know, within the context of the sort of politics of the MCU, there's some troubling undertones, right? That this all happens, you know, like it all happens within about a week of this one incident in Lagos. You know, treaties don't get written that fast. This had to be in the works a long time. And it suggested to me anyway that there were forces within world governments that didn't like the idea of the, you know, sovereignty, uh, sorry, sovereign monopoly of force being threatened and wanted to, uh, you know, put the Avengers under check more than under accountability. They wanted some control on them. And, you know, when, when they built a giant, you know, indefinite detention prison in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which for some reason is being run by the U.S. Secretary of Defense, it makes you start to wonder about, you know, what kind of private agendas are at work. I, I was wondering how that got built that quick. I work in, well, you know, I don't I think it politics. had been built that quick. that quick. I think they had been building it for a while. Yeah. yeah. Like the Patriot Act. Yeah, I, I agree with, I couldn't, I, I think we are in fierce agreement mostly here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that it, it would have been more interesting to me if Steve had tried either to negotiate or find out more information, but to sort of move the movie along, they just had him basically flatly disagree. And then he ends up coming across as somebody who isn't, who thinks he's too good to sit at the table with the, and make decisions with the people whose lives his decisions affect. Mm -hmm. And I I found that troubling as being presented because to me the the thing was and maybe this is just the way that my antennas were picking up they get presented with a fait accompli you know they get told this is happening you know with you or to you and you either accept the dictate or you uh and you know but there is some inconsistency here right like thunderbolt ross you know makes it sound like you have no choice this isn't about negotiation you're not at the table you're under our control now Mm-hmm. Whereas Tony turns around and says, well, everything can be renegotiated later, and this is just about a temporary PR issue. So which of the two it is is not exactly clear. Or maybe you know that indicates the positions of Thunderbolt Ross and Tony Stark you know, as opposed to the objective reality. And I, I was I think I think where I get off is like I don't I struggle to understand why Steve, who is presented as a pretty smart man would not realize that just because Thunderbolt Ross says it's this way doesn't mean it has to be that way. I mean, their leverage, uh, they don't have a lot of, like, everyone has leverage. You know, these these super-powered people have a significant amount of leverage. Um, I, I realize it might be distasteful to remind people your negotiations of <laughs> 
with that you have a lot of leverage, a.k.a. you can just punch your way out of any situation. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it, it's important. That's He could have said, hey, there's option number three, which is that we have meetings and discuss this and we come to a mutual agreement. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, there's a whole discussion that needs to be had. One of the, um, you know, like I don't understand why they didn't take their case to the media and say, look, you know, Scarlet Witch was dealing with a suicide bomb in a crowded marketplace with hundreds of Nigerians, and she, you know, she tried to save everybody, was not successful, but why are the lives of 10 Wakandans worth 200 Nigerians? You know, mm-hmm. that argument was never raised. Um, and, you know, one of, the, one of the things that was also interesting is the whole thing about Thor and Hulk not being around, and I'm like, hmm. So the Avengers lose two of their most powerful, you know, and theoretically most dangerous assets that makes them somehow more dangerous. Um, and the, the final thing that I was thinking about is, um, you know, look what happens with the Black Panther. Like what happens when a, superpow- uh, a superpowered being is itself, a, you know, is himself a sovereign nation? How does the Sokovia Accords work then? Like does Dr. Doom have to register with the – with the UN, or would he tell them that you know, no, the UN Declaration of of Rights, you know, guarantee of sovereign, you know, equality means that you know you can't do anything to me. Well, he's fine because he's over at Fox. <laughs> huh. Well, he's not so fine. I mean, you know, Fan Fortastic was was got awful. <laughs> A lot of this is why I, I feel like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. actually kind of handled this a little bit better because they were very careful to draw parallels between what's happening in the, with the registration uh, pressures. It's not clear that it's an act on the show. It, it, it seems like it might be something that the government is doing by executive order, basically, um, that that what they're doing there, they they draw parallels between that and the real-world discussion that we are having right now about immigration mm. and ethnic difference, right? Um, and they do it just through aesthetics. They The show has right-wing militia groups that oppose inhumans. Uh, the inhumans are portrayed as a diverse group of people who, you know, have this thing in common through no fault of their own. You know, Mm -hmm. they might as well be a nation, you know. And there are good ones, there are bad ones, but it's ridiculous to judge one by the actions of the other. So there are clear parallels to nationalism, racism, those sorts of prejudices. Um, And I think it was really effective because it forces you and the audience to think, well, yeah, I mean, you shouldn't lose your human rights just because you have what is functionally just a genetic difference that, that is no fault of your own. Yeah. yeah. And and that's certainly much what's, what's, you know, what's closest to the comics, which made it so obvious to all comics readers back in the day that, like, Iron Man was completely wrong. Uh, and, and why, and connecting also... this back to Marvel, I mean, Marvel, connecting this back to the mutants, like, the reason why readers of, X-Men comics have always take it as face value that like mutant registration acts are not okay is because it's addressing people based on their born identity rather than based on their actions and conduct. 
Yeah, and that was that was always the weirdest part of the Civil War comic to me is that like none of the the mutant characters bring up the mutant registration acts. Um, you know, which in in the MCU were passed by the U.S. Congress, signed by the president into law, and then were later uh, declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. You know, because for them, like they would say, you know, this is a, a threat to a minority population who the U.S. government has built genocide robots to destroy. Um, you know, and the other thing in, in the comics is that, you know, the original uh, Registration Act specifically targeted the Avengers and the Fantastic Four as well. So you're sort of wondering, like, why isn't, you know, why isn't uh, Reed Richards, you know, like, why doesn't he think back to the recent, you know, semi-recent past and say, hang on a second, this act you know, is being pushed forward by people who, you know, are hostile to me and my family. Yeah. I, I, That's I a really good point, that registration would be a violation of the 14th Amendment, wouldn't it be? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And and the 13th, given the, the you know, involuntary service in the... And... Um, Probably also, uh, wait, which one is Cruel and Unusual Punishment? The fourth, I think. Yeah, just given that the you know punishment for, for violation was indefinite detention in the negative zone. Yeah. Without any form of trial. Well, you know, I, I, I think that, like, as people who are really invested in having media we consume that addresses political matters, like be coherent and insightful in some way, it's hard for us to like watch civil war and find all of these aspects that we find that we just, that you guys all highlighted here is being missing from the movie and like therefore undermining the political argument. And yet like from a narrative standpoint, it's so hard for me to conceive of, how they would flesh these things out without making the movie much longer. And the movie certainly did succeed at being entertaining, but I was throughout the movie really frustrated by the fact that I felt like Cap's politics seemed rather libertarian. Like that was my like goal gut immediate while watching the movie response to, to watching this. Although, I mean, the other like big distraction I had watching the movie was every damn time I saw Jeremy Renner, I just got completely sidetracked by how angry I am about his kind mm. of handling of the actor's handling um, of when he had insulted uh, Black Widow. I'm sorry. Uh, he, basically, he had said that basically called like Black Widow a slut during the press junkets around the last movie because she, you know, was dating or has a romantic entanglement with Hulk in the past film. And, you know, he, he, and, 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 and obviously, you know, Chris Evans had gone along and said like, a, ha-ha, that's funny when Renner had said it, but then there were, was a round of apologies and Chris Evans' apology sounded like an apology and Jeremy Renner's apology was a, I'm sorry that you were offended apology. So yeah. I can't look at Renner without being completely sidetracked by how much I want to punch him at this point. Meanwhile, now Chris Evans is dating Jenny Slate, which means he's at least got to be 50% the way to being a good feminist at this point. <laughs> I think he's a good guy. I think he was, yeah, I think you, your read on that was exactly right, that he just 
was laughing at at what at the moment he was just going along and laughing with a joke and then only in retrospect realized like that that sent such a terrible message to especially their young fan base. Yeah. And meanwhile, Renner, like honest to God, like it's, I don't pay attention to celebrities behaviors really, but like it, this information about Renner being a sexist asshole completely pulled me out of it whenever he was on the screen at this point, he's just, permanently sullied in my mind and I can't take him seriously. So my proposal for the film would be to just remove all of the Hawkeye parts and have that address the missing political conversation that you both addressed just now. <laughs> or or um or replace Hawkeye with the female Hawkeye. Let's let's yeah. get that done. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um wait, I'm I always get her name wrong. Laura Kinney, Kate. right? Nope. Kate Kate Bishop. Kate Bishop. Kate Laura Bishop. Kinney is Wolverine. Wait. Yeah. Oh yeah yeah. <laughs> okay, so I got I swapped the two legacy characters. Yeah, she's awesome. So that would be great. Would it have been better storytelling to instead of having you know they've got Thanos being teased throughout tons of films? Um, would have been to lay the the groundwork for this like a few uh, films ago and have it slowly teased out. You know, and to to build it out that way, like you you've got a interconnected world, use it. You know, maybe it's a, a, a conversation here, a news thing here, there. Uh, maybe it's something on Agents of Shield, but all of it tied together would basically do what you know everyone is saying they should have done. Yeah, I I wonder, you know, if this is like we're seeing some of the, um, what's the right word here? Uh, like limitations of the MCU in terms of like actually being a full shared universe, because, you know, for example, the, we've never really seen any of the, like the biggest actors and actresses of the, I mean, uh, of the movies go into the TV shows. I mean, I think uh, Jamie Alexander is stiff and um, uh, um, Kobe Smolder as Maria Hill are probably the, Oh, no, no, Sam Jackson did a cameo. Sam right? Jackson was on one episode, or two episodes, I think. Yeah, I think that, you know, but we're not really seeing a, a full um, coordination, really. And, no. you know, it, it's a pity because I think, like, we, you know, all of us would love, like, uh, you know, a 30-minute uh, political show about, you know, the Avengers grappling with these issues. In the context of a movie that's already two and a half hours long, um, you know, I think how much we could have ever gotten out of that is maybe rather limited. I w- you know, I will say on 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 the topic of narrative structure, I do kind of appreciate that they decided to make this an international treaty in the movies as opposed to getting admired in the registration act from the comic books because mm-hmm. I think that this discussion that we're having here now about the complications of it is so interesting and it is because it's difficult it is it is because international treaties by their nature are complicated beasts and they created a much better attention where it was actually easy to see both sides of this argument um so one way or another, you know, I will I have to give them eternal credit for actually thinking that through and actually saying like, look, we want to make a a comic book movie which is so different than every others where it's actually difficult to decide 
who the quote unquote good guys are and who the bad guys are. Yeah, and that was something that was done very on purpose. So uh, the Russo brothers were in D.C. talking about it, and someone asked about, you know, knowing who was right and who was wrong. Or they were asked, uh, which side were you on? That was it. And the response was, we back and forth, and we want you to go back and forth. We we purposely left it ambiguous. And for people to be able to walk away not sure, you know, who they support. Hmm. Well, that's I mean, it's not Game of Thrones, but, you know. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I, you know, I think that generally speaking, like, the Russo, gosh, who wrote the script on this? It was the same people who did um, uh, Captain America First Avengers and Captain America Winter Soldier. Oh, so it's the same team. I'm sorry, I should know their names. I'm a failure as a former employee of the Writers Guild. Um, so, like, you know, they generally speaking have had, like, a political perspective to communicate in their movies. Um, not, you know, they're, they're not a perspective that, like, would kite, that's, like, hyper-politicized, but there is a political perspective that they're communicating. And in this movie, it's sort of like if, if the Rooster Brothers are saying, when you walk away from the movie, you shouldn't know whose side was right, like, that actually does sound like a like a divergence from the earlier approach of the movies where it's clear where you're supposed to come down. And I think, you know, like in a movie where you want to maintain the public sympathies for both sides of this, because there's no good guys and no bad guys, really, at least none who survive the movie, um, then that makes sense. Uh, mm. Well, it's the classic, the classic crossover from like DC and Marvel where mm. you couldn't have any of the characters be overpowered because then the audience would like, become fans of that publisher. So it was always kind of that middle, you know, oh, they just punched each other and both passed out. Because, you know, if you, if you had people sensitive towards Iron Man, well, then Captain America 4 might not have as good of an audience. And if you have people really sensitive and backing Cap, well, then Iron Man 4 might not do well. So, of course, they're going to play, you know, as much down the middle just for box office, I would think. And they did make me, you know, I'm, I tend not to be sympathetic towards Tony Stark. Um, they did a great job of making me sympathetic with him. I mean, like I said in the other podcast we recorded, like this movie is all about one of the worst weeks of Tony's life. And I feel so terrible for him. Um, and he just, you know, he doesn't seem to be like driven by his normal combination of hubris and capitalism and hypomania. He's like, not that there's anything wrong with that, but um, he's like, he he's, you know, very vulnerable and he's trying to be accountable, and he's holding himself accountable for something for once. Well, he's kind of projecting, though. Like a lot of the stuff that you know needs to be held accountable is stuff that he did and not them. Mm. And he's kind of, you know, like he has a moment where he says, you know, and then Ultron, my fault. But that's the only time that you know they bring up the fact that, you know, if it wasn't for Tony Stark, Sokovia never happened. I, you know, I love all this because that's the thing that a lot of critics of superhero movies say that they lack and often are right, which is things like character arcs, <laughs> you know? Tony has had a very strong, believable character arc over many movies, and he is not a changed person. He's still an arrogant SOB. 
he's just one who has had some pangs of conscience and he's trying to be a better person but he still falls back on his bad habits right of deflecting responsibility of trying to control everything etc cetera, etc cetera. so he feels like a real person to me which is awesome yes and i really Agreed. felt that the movie did a good job of like showing the ways in which he's traumatized by like the horrible things that have happened to him. Um, and uh, do, do folks think, I'm, I'm sorry if we talked about this in our last podcast, I don't think we did. Do you think that they're setting him up to have demon in the bottle, like being the next Iron Man movie? And do you think that they're that setting up be... cap to get assassinated so that Jer- so that Chris Evans can leave. And then like Sam or actually probably not Sam, probably Bucky because fucking people will be the next cap. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't think uh, Chris Evans, um, just because I think he's signed on for more movies. Uh, But, you know, I'd love to see Demon in a Bottle. Um, They haven't, like, they kind of did a little bit with Tony Stark being, uh, you know, a bit of an alcoholic in Iron Man 2, but it was a little bit throwaway. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see. He's certainly, you know, in terms of, like, what kind of things might set him off? Like, he's just lost almost his entire support structure. Yeah. I kind of have to admit, I hope they don't. And the reason why is I think addiction um, makes for terrible, addiction storylines make for terrible TV and movie stories. I think that they can be good for novels um, and for written literature because you have a lot more interior access to the character. Whoa. <laughs> well, that was fascinating. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it, TV and movies sort of reward um, conf- exterior conflict. Mm -hmm. And the problem with an addiction storyline, it is man versus himself, and that is just tough to watch. The worst parts of Mad Men were about his alcoholism. I mean, unless you're going to make, like, all that jazz and have musical numbers about it, which is (laughs) unlikely, but I would get behind, you're right. I just don't, I just can't see him doing it because it's a Disney film. Like, can you really see Disney being like, yeah, we're going to take Iron Man, which is one of our our nice... um, you know, we're making a lot of money in, in products off of this, and we want them to go start drinking heavily because that's what, you know, 13- and 14-year-olds want when they play with their toys is the, the Tony on a Bender action figure with, you know, mm. Kung Fu rela- uh, reflex. That's I, I just sad, though, because it's sad to say that, like, child children's market, when, in fact, like, addressing addiction was a completely legitimate Oh, I'm not saying it's not legit. Kids around. I'm not, I mean, I, and I know you're not saying that, but I'm saying it's a shame if people don't think that kids can have those narratives. They just have to be done in a certain way. But well, I, I mean, suspect like, that's what, what, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, or was it Green Arrow that did Speedy and Addiction? Like, it was you Green go, Arrow, Green Lantern, yes. Yeah, I mean, you definitely could do it. Yeah, yeah. I just don't see Disney doing it. Right. They, they still have to make their money back. They, they're only... Well, technically, the movies have made $10 billion, so let's say they get half of that. They're, they're only up like a billion so far in their purchase. They have a ways to go. <laughs> oh, that's all. <laughs> I, w- I will also say I, I would like to see kind of – one of the things I really do like about the Captain America movies being so political, besides the fact that I like politics, is that – it's so often in movies, especially genre movies and TV shows, that 
people are portrayed as somehow apolitical, which is so dehumanizing. Mm. Like, you know, I feel like if you can't guess what a character's political party they vote for is, like, you have failed in characterization most of the time. Oh, my God, I so agree. I want that to be a test in everything now. Can we, we're going to call that the Marcotte test because it totally <laughs> drives me crazy. Yes, this is totally a conceit in so many forms of mass culture where the only people who have a political agenda are people who are like capital P politicians and that the general public's lack of politics is what ennobles them. When in reality, having a lack of politics is actually absolutely For people who don't have any, it's probably a product of the fact that they're working 10 jobs because the system oppresses them and forces them to work 10 jobs. But like we shouldn't be valorizing people being apolitical and we shouldn't be acting as if the public has no politics. And what's interesting is I've seen in a lot of different comic book narratives, comics do a really interesting job of actually having regular people have politics. And I feel like I've seen that more often in comic books than I have in a lot of other forms of media, actually. It is funny like, though, because everyone in Marvel is a Democrat. Like, yeah. Other than maybe I- Tony Stark. <laughs> Yeah, like I mean, Tony Stark's probably a Democrat, like right now, but he wouldn't be if the if the right wing wasn't so completely like misaligned. If Tony Stark's like the Democrats have all kinds of defense budget funding, you know, so like I don't that wouldn't be a problem for Tony. He's he's totally fine with the Democratic mainstream, I would imagine. <laughs> That's my probably. Case. You know, like um, but yeah, I mean, like in in D.C., they basically had to assign right wing politics to Hawkman because they, like, didn't even want to make their former military guys be right-wing. I mean, like, they, they basically have a former military character in, in, in Green Lantern be, like, a stand-in for having a more establishment military perspective on things, but he regularly gets challenged and changes his mind on that. So they couldn't, they, they wouldn't even want to use him as, like, the perpetual, you know, example of a right-winger. So, like, they had to, like, assign a character who nobody liked, basically, to, like, be the right-wing guy. Um, so, I mean, I, look, I, you know, my parents are like progressive, I'm very left and my parents and I have some of the most vocal political arguments you can imagine. I mean, like, I mean, we're all living this right now, I think, you know, in terms of the democratic primary. And I, I'd love to have like different people on the left having different arguments happening mm. in explicit ways in the, in the mass media, you know? And, uh, it's a shame that what we're getting instead, I think, is Civil War Part Two in the comics, which sounds specious and weak. Although I haven't really read it yet. It's um, interesting. I, I just had a thought, and it, it bounces off uh, something that Alana, you, and Brett just pointed out, which is, I think part of our frustration with the the, the lack of politics or the the insufficient coverage of politics has to do with this kind of four quadrant Disney model. Because you know, one of the things that that just yeah brought back to me is the uh, the uh, cut scenes from the original uh, Avengers. Wait, was it either Avengers or Avengers Age of Ultron? I can't remember. Uh, where uh, Steve Rogers is uh, meeting with uh, Peggy and talking about like what happened to you know economic security, what happened to you know essentially the Second Bill of Rights, and. Mm they cut that and I'm sort of like, you know, uh, um, Joss Whedon said that they cut that for time, but, you know, being a a somewhat cynical bastard, I was kind of wondering, you know, how much of that is because it's safer politically to, um, 
you know, to have Captain America's politics go no further than, you know, I'm against Hydra. Because, you know, if, if Captain America all of a sudden started talking like Bernie Sanders, then, you know, some people would stop seeing his movies. You know, I personally watch the Captain America movies and feel like he comes across strongly as a New Deal Democrat to me, right? Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. when I wrote that piece for Salon, a lot of the reaction I got in social media was from conservatives who could not believe that I thought Captain America was a liberal. And so I agree with you, Steve. Clearly they're not telegraphing that loudly enough. Well, I think that comes from the people that just see he's in a uniform, he's military. How can anybody in the military be liberal? Like, I really think it's just that stupidity and and lack of thinking of his actual background and his actions and knowing his comic history. Like, I mean, he quit being Captain America because of the Nixon thing. So, like, clearly this is a guy who, you know, is not rooted in, you know, that um, doing air quotes, you know, that military, that stereotype military soldier who's nothing but a staunch conservative. Hmm. I mean, I think we should just accuse all those dudes of being fake geek boys, because if they've been reading <laughs> their, their, their Captain America comics, they would know, like, the specific history. And obviously, you know, people who aren't familiar with Steve's essay about Captain America as a New Deal Democrat, like, go read it right now. But you've probably all read it. Folks might not have read all of his columns about Captain America and the politics of Captain America comics throughout the Silver Age, uh, which he's been writing at graphicpolicy.com, part of a people's history of the Marvel Universe. Um, this information is all out there, you know? Uh, and even if, like, you don't have a progressive orientation, like, it is undeniable that Captain America fought against Nixon and saved hippies in Altamont. Like, you can't – that's just not – we're not pulling this out of nowhere, people. This isn't just like progressive blinders. Um, yeah. I would say and even in, in the movies, he is telegraphed, to my mind, very strongly as a liberal. Because mm-hmm. he's working in the 1940s with women, <laughs> with people of color. He He's explicitly anti-fascist. Like, I mean, I realize that you can sort of go into it with blinders on and think, oh, they're just trying to make him seem modern. And I'm like, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, because that is like, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, I I think that some of the vitriol that I saw was just, well, obviously vitriol is never merited because people shouldn't be dicks, but it was really ignorant and like, showed that they weren't paying attention in the first place and weren't really looking past the very jingoistic yeah. assumption. And and I think that because of the name of the character, Captain America, like the movies and everything have to kind of go above and beyond to make it clear to people oh, that absolutely. America, Captain America isn't just any hero, as, as Stephen says, has said. Yeah. And and it's, it's interesting because, you know, uh, I remember I was listening to uh, the School of Movies uh, do their coverage of Captain America, and they're uh, a predominantly British podcast. And they were sort of saying that, you know, not knowing Captain America particularly well, that the, just the name, like, initially put them off, that they thought it was going to be this jingoistic flag-waving thing. But, you know, even within, uh, you know, people who supposedly follow comic books, you know, I found uh, this letter that David Goyer, the guy who wrote Batman versus Superman, wrote, where he was sort of, you know, uh, I think it was uh, Grinwald who was writing Captain America at the time. 
But, like, he wrote a letter way back in the day where he was like, I don't understand why Captain America, you know, shouldn't he be uh, a conservative because he comes from <laughs> from back then? Um, you know, and I think it does come from this kind of uh, shorthand thinking. Historically, people don't know history. Like, yeah. And also, yeah, I just... I, it makes me it makes me mad though because it shows how much the right has been able to claim patriotism as a conservative value, mm-hmm. and that's ridiculous. I used and, to be in a political history too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly true. Hiding actual progressive things in the past. Um, I mean, I. I I used to be in a political theater group that did a lot of work based on the American Revolutionary War. So, like, I used to go to like anti-Bush protests wearing sort of like disco revolutionary war outfits. And I had so many baby boomers like come up to us almost in tears saying how meaningful it was for them to see somebody who shared their politics owning that as being patriotic because of the alienation that came during the Vietnam War era. Like, you know, people basically said like you couldn't be pro-America and be progressive. And I mean, you can have a debate over the legitimacy of having any nationalistic feelings whatsoever, or blah, blah, blah. I just think it's the reality is like human, generally speaking, have orientations towards that and trying to deny that that's how people will view each other is a little bit like bad political practice. But like, you know, like this is like a real scar in people's minds in America, like where they don't think that they can, that they're a real American unless they have these like backwards beliefs. Or like we have, you know, we constantly have media narratives that say you're not a real American unless you're white. You're not a real American unless you live in the suburbs. You're not a real American if you live in a city. Like you're not a real American if you're a leftist. And like all of that is like just not true. I've always wondered um, about this, and I, you see it a little bit with Falcon uh, now that he's Captain America in the comics. Is that you know oh, yeah. part of it? Some of it I think is interesting in that Captain America's blonde-haired, blue eyes. You know mm-hmm. that, oh, yeah. that very conservative. You know, if you you've, if you ask conservative to to picture or you know someone describe a, a your average conservative, I think they're going to describe the look of Chris Evans, blonde haired, blue eyed, and therefore yes, he needs to be conservative. And then where you see people talking about Falcon as Captain America, he's, he's the liberal agitator, and clearly he's yeah. not blonde haired, blue eyes. Mm-hmm. I mean. I mean, and it doesn't get more like Nazi, like Aryan Nazi, than to like say like particular white people with particular like coloration is more wholesome. Yeah, and it is interesting because you know part of the, I think the idea of Captain America was to like create the perfect Aryan and have him be you know completely antithetical to fascism. But you're right that it you know people do shorthand with image uh, with images and it's interesting because i'm i'm right now writing an essay about sam wilson the falcon and his role in captain america comic books that'll probably turn into multiple essays but right now i'm looking at image from uh captain america and the falcon issue 126 in which uh sam wilson dons captain america's uniform back in like 1970 something hold on Captain America 126. Uh, and, you know, like, if we think about, you know, the, the politics of the current Sam Wilson, Captain America. Oh, yeah. Okay. June 1970. Imagine the politics of that moment in June 1970, you know? Wow. Yeah. And how 
far that hasn't gone. Um, I hate to cut this off, but I probably, I really kind of need to get going, but, um, well, thank okay. you so well, much yeah. for joining us. And I just, yeah, before you go, if you want to just give people the last rundown of where they can find you on the internet, good Twitter, um, Tumblr, if you have it. Yeah, I'm easy. I'm at Twitter at Amanda Marcotte. That's M-A-R-C-O-T-T-E. Um, just all my name. And I write for Salon. So easy to find. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No, appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Bye. Okay. Bye. Um, so you, do you guys have anything we want to wrap up with uh, before we close out? Uh, no, I thought it was a, a very good, um, fully rounded discussion of all the issues. Great. Yeah, it was really, it was interesting. Um, but yeah, no, I, it's, uh, you, I think you really see this sort of, uh, discussion when it comes to these sort of things in comics in general. So it's nice to actually have these discussions because usually it comes down to the, Hey, comics are political. And the response is no, they're not. Um, yeah, but those yeah. are conversations that we don't have on our podcast because those people are so very <laughs> wrong. I mean, yeah, yeah, I think, like, you know, for folks who are listening to this, if you have friends who, like, have that opinion, like, I don't know, maybe turn them on to graphic policy and they can see that actually comics are completely political and so is everything. But, um, but yeah, hopefully we can help you make those cases more effectively amongst your friends so you don't have to pull your hair out and scream, as I imagine I would if I had to hear that kind of mishigas. Um, yes, yes, yes. So, Stephen, do you want to tell people where we can find you on the internet? Uh, sure. So, uh, you can find my writing at uh, Graphic Policy if you look for People's History of the Marvel Universe. Uh, you can find it at RaceForTheIronThrone.wordpress.com or uh, .tumblr.com. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Stephen Atwell. Uh, Stephen with a V and then A T T E W E L L. I'm going out, out on a limb and saying you, you'll be discussing whatever hell happened last night that blew up my all my social networks. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wrote a thing late last night that went up this morning that, uh, you know, brought up some initial thoughts. Right. Yeah, I, I saw, like, one Facebook comment from someone, and I'm like, I have no idea. And then I saw the second one, and I'm like, it's got to be a Game of Thrones thing because I – it's either that or someone died. I don't know which. And they're all like honoring the <laughs> person. Either a real person died someone or a fictional person. Right? Someone did die. True. Yeah, someone on Fear the Walking Dead, and that's the one I watched. To my dismay, I guess. Boo. And then, Brett, um, are we taping one day? What, next week? Yeah. Memorial yeah. Day. Okay, um, cool. Yeah, 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 we're good. I think Memorial Day. The next weekend, I think we'll probably take a break. But Memorial Day, we're good. Oh, okay. And we'll be talking about, I guess, rebirth, question mark? Sure. Um, Or maybe Civil War II, question mark? I'm actually not particularly looking forward to either of these things, but that might be the reason to talk about it. Civil War II would be interesting to discuss. That would actually be fascinating to discuss because it – the zero issue. So, for those who don't know, the, we were just discussing Captain America: Civil War. Uh, Marvel's got an event because they're very creative. They're doing a sequel to Civil War called Civil War Two. Again, very creative. 
uh, that started with a zero issue this month and will, I think, officially start next month and go through the summer. That will be in a whole bunch of their things. Um, it seems to be taking a little bit of a different topic than Civil War, but one that also has to deal with more political stuff. In this case, um, basically ripping off the movie, or not the movie, but the story, Phil K. Dick story, Minority Report. But we'll discuss next week. Sounds good. Yes. Um, so yeah, so Stephen, thank you so much for joining us as usual. It's my pleasure. Um, oh, and one last thing, I want to just promote the essay that I wrote on graphic policy a few days ago, um, talking about the role of comics, superhero universes, out, other than the DC universe and Marvel universe, um, and what they can contribute to having more diversity in comics, uh, or what they could propose as creative platforms. Um, so if you have thoughts about Valiant, if you have thoughts about the old Wildstorm universe or Astro City, go check out my piece at graphicpolicy.com called Another Universe is Possible? Question mark. Yes, it was very, very pop, uh, popular. Um, you should definitely check that one out. So, um, yeah. And then, as always, you can check us out every single day at graphicpolicy.com. Of course, we're on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all at Graphic Policy, keeping it nice and consistent. Uh, but as always, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week. And for those who came in on the conversation late or uh, want to listen to it again or share it with their friends, it will be up on iTunes in probably about like an hour or so as well as Stitcher. And then uh, download it up and upload it to the site tomorrow and SoundCloud so you can catch it there. So as always, thank you for listening. I'm Brett. <laughs> I'm Ilana. I'm Steve. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.